Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1. An easy passage to find. It is the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We'll read the entirety of that chapter and then continue on through verse 3 of chapter 2. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be lights, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. Apologies. Page sticking. And to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, 
over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything which creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts and illuminate our minds to hear and understand what you would have us to hear from you. As I know that this text has provoked no small amount of difficulty and controversy, I pray that you would prepare us to understand it rightly and truly according to what you have said and what you have made. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin this morning a new series on the book of Genesis. It is the first book of the Bible. It is the book of beginnings. It is a book of foundations. In it, we see the creation of the earth itself. We see the introduction and the growth of humanity, of civilization, of culture. We see the fall and sin and the ways in which it corrupts. We see the introduction of God's plan of redemption, God's covenant. We see the formation of of nations. And all throughout this book, we see God's love and faithfulness to his people. Genesis sets the scene for the rest of Scripture. To know and understand Genesis is to have a foundation to properly understand the rest of the Bible. To misunderstand Genesis will likely result in misunderstanding the rest of the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, written by the great prophet of old, Moses. But the importance of Genesis and its first place in Scripture and its foundational situation does not mean that it is without controversy or not a source of disagreement. And today... Looking at this first chapter, this chapter on creation, we have what may be the most disputed and controversial text in the whole Bible. Modern science has claimed the implausibility and improbability of a creation account such as the one described here. We'll look at those issues, some of them, and how we ought to think through them and respond. Most of all, in this creation account, 
We should recognize God's glory and power and dominion on full display and what that teaches us about our world and our purposes within it. And we will look at this creation account this morning in four points. First, we will see divisions or distinctions made in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The foundations are laid for the universe, for the earth, and for life. Second, we will see diversification in verses 11 through 25. Once these foundations are laid, we see creation within those distinctions, populating and adorning the things which God has made and distinguished. Third, we will see dominion in verses 26 through 31. We see the creation of man and the purposes for which man was created. And then fourth and finally, we will see desisting, God resting in the first three verses of chapter 2. So we have divisions, diversification, dominion, and desisting. So first, we will look at divisions in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 1. And specifically, there are four divisions that are worthy of our attention. The first division, or the first distinction, is that between being and non-being, between existence and non-existence. We see that this text begins with, in the beginning. Now, if you've been here and recently in the evenings for our series in John, we saw the same phrase used to open John, describing how the Word, the Logos, the Son of God, was together with God in the beginning, in the time before time, the space before space, before creation. The beginning is eternity past, when there was God and nothing else. God is spirit. We've been talking about this in our Sunday school lessons through the larger catechism. God is not material. He does not belong to the material realm. He existed eternally before and without the material realm, the realm of creation. And yet, from nothing, God created everything. Now some, like the Latter-day Saints and others, they try to say that God created from pre-existing matter. But if this were so, that would make matter eternal. That would make it transcendent. That would make matter a God unto itself. We would have a dualism between the spirit God and physical matter. But this is not true. In the beginning, God created matter. He created the physical realm. He created all things in it. The very concept of being, he created out of nothing, out of the absence of any such categories. It can be hard for us to comprehend. It can be hard for us to even think about such a state. We are physical. We are time-bound. We are space-bound to think of a time when none of these things were yet made. But God did this by the word of his power. Out of nothing comes things. This is known as our doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God has no pre-existing stuff or pre-existing beings alongside him. He made all the stuff and all the stuff that makes other stuff. Now, God did not create because he needed to. In eternity past, God was complete in himself. He did not create because he either lacked anything 
or had too much of anything. God does not depend on his creation or his creatures. He is self-existent. He simply created for his good pleasure and for his own glory. Now the heavens and the earth, as they were initially created, they were formless and void. They were chaotic. They were not distinguishable. They lacked order. This is what we see in verse 2 of chapter 1. There is no light. There is no life. There is emptiness. And yet God is present and working within it. We know from John that the Son... The Logos was present and active in this creating activity. And we also see in verse 2 that the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep. We have all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, present and active in this creation. Out of nothing has come something. But that is only the beginning. There is more work to be done. And so the second division, the second distinction we see is that between darkness and light. In original creation, there was not distinguishable light. There was only darkness. There was this void. But God speaks light into being, and he declares it good. We see here an introduction of a pattern that we'll repeat throughout this text. God creates and declares what he has created good. The world was not created accidentally or without purpose. It didn't just show up here by a big bang or some other thing. No, this world was created good. Nature is good. The world is good. It is only because of the later introduction of the fall and sin and evil that bad comes into being. But once God has created light, He divides light from darkness, and He names them night and day. Then we see this transition. There is evening and morning the first day. Now, much ink has been spilled, much argument and debate reigns in our day as to what is meant here by a day. But I believe very strongly that when we hear of night and day here, we should think of a night and day as we understand them. A period of roughly 24 hours in which a time of light and darkness are divided. There are many sound and biblical reasons to think this. For one, the Hebrew text in Genesis 1 and 2, it is structured as a narrative. It is presented as an accounting of events which occurred. It is not structured as poetry or myth or some other genre of text. The actions and transitions in this text read like a linear accounting of one event to the next. Second, this text is very clear in its distinction of days, and does so in the way which ordinary days, 24-hour days, are distinguished elsewhere in the Bible. One commentator notes that of the hundreds of times in the Hebrew Old Testament that you see this word day, this word yom in the Hebrew, modified with numbers like these, so first or second or third or so forth, it is always referring to a normal day. Now third, we see how this account of creation is spoken of in other texts. How it is spoken of ordinary days and used to pattern ordinary days. Perhaps the most profound and well-known example of this comes from the giving of the fourth commandment. God's command of Sabbath observance in Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. Where it says, remember the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy. So it's setting a pattern for how we are to keep our days. It says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. But then listen to this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So God uses his days, these days of creation, to describe and to pattern our days. They are treated as the same things. They are treated as similar things. So if God didn't really make the heavens and the earth in six days, why would this be his appeal for the necessity of our working six days before resting on the seventh? Some have taken these days of Genesis 1 and they do something called a day-age view where they say that the days aren't really days, but they're these indefinite periods of time. could be thousands or millions of years. But if that were so, why should we not interpret the days in the fourth commandment as ages? Let's work for thousands of years before resting for some other indefinite time. It, It doesn't work. It's not a consistent use of days. Another view that's popular in our day, it's called the literary framework hypothesis. This was a view of Meredith G. Klein, and it was taught at the seminary where I studied. In this view, this text really isn't a narrative account of creation at all. It is a literary construct like a poem or a myth or a legend where God asserts his authority over the false gods of the nations. And so the days are paired, the first with the fourth, second with the fifth, third with the sixth. And then these are taken to be parallel accounts of the same things. And proponents of the framework view, they'll say things like, well, there's light on the first day, but there's no sun and moon and stars until the fourth day. So that really can't be an order of days. But this framework view has several problems of its own. First, the text itself claims nothing other than to be the description of God creating the heavens and the earth. Would it be factual, would it be honest to describe this narrative as narrative and even use it for norming our divisions of time if it's just a myth or a poem or something that's not really connected to reality? And furthermore, if God did not create the world in this way described here, how did he do it? We just simply don't know. And this is why the framework hypothesis is often used For instance, as a cover to those who want to hold to views of theistic evolution, Um, the idea that that evolution, as science claims, happened just that God was somehow controlling it. But another issue with the framework view is uh, it bases itself on other ancient Near Eastern texts that do similar things. And the question we have to ask is, is it appropriate to use pagan ancient Near Eastern texts to norm our understanding of Scripture? Maybe they can teach us useful things about the ancient world, but at the end of the day, they are not authoritative over Scripture, and they cannot so significantly revise our understanding of Scripture when Scripture has been understood a certain way, or at least very close to a certain way throughout the history of the church. Can we really say that the entire church up until the modern age was so significantly mistaken about their understanding of creation and believing that 
six days were six days. And then third and finally, if the intent of this text is to be a polemic against false gods of the nations, why doesn't it say so? I mean, so much of Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, is polemicizing against false gods. You can read the books of the prophets, and over and over again, idolatry and false gods are condemned. Scripture never has to be shy about saying that it is condemning false gods. It doesn't need to dress up in a what presents itself as a narrative, this sort of polemic. There's no need for such subtlety. There's no need for such sophistry in dealing with this text. So all of this to say, at the end of the day, I would maintain the best way to read this text is that six days are six days. And furthermore, I think we need to challenge the underlying assumptions of why these other views are popular. These views would not exist and they would not be held by anyone if modern science had not stepped so far out of its lane to claim for itself what belongs to God's word. This is not a question of valid interpretation. It is a question of authority. Is God's word our ultimate authority or is science the ultimate authority? Now, don't get me wrong. Science has done good things. We've been helped by inventions and technology. But science is not sufficient. It is not competent to speak to the questions of the origins of the earth. That's not what it's meant to do. Science studies what is observable, what can be tested, what can be repeated. Science is at best making educated guesses on origins based on the evidence. And the evidence we have is itself very limited and open to differing interpretations. Of course, you will very rarely hear scientists in the scientific community admit this. You won't hear them talk about things about how the fossil record doesn't show the transitions between species that they claim, the, the gap problem in Darwin's theories. You won't hear about cases where carbon dating show contradictions and errors, even though those are out there. You won't hear about these things because in our age, science has in many cases become scientism. It has become a religion where its claims must be taken as articles of faith. But against this, we maintain that God is God. If God wanted to create this world with all its intricacies and features in six days, he is sufficiently able and powerful to do it because God is God. If God wanted to light and heat the earth before creating the sun and moon, he absolutely could, because God is God. And God has told us and preserved in his word that this is what he has done. God is almighty. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. He does not have to play by the rules of nature or science. He created nature. He created science. He is sovereign over all things. The problem we have with Genesis 1 is not a problem with Scripture. It is a problem with those who would seek to put God and his word under human authority, those who would stand in judgment over it. So, all of this to say, night and day are made, and there is one of them, the evening and morning. We have this first day. This is also why in the Scriptures and in the Jewish world, and this adds 
Another layer to understanding these days as days, they consider the days to begin in the evening and then include the next day. But we have this evening and morning, we have the first day. And then we get our third division. Don't worry, the others won't take as long, which occurs on the second day, the division of the heavens from the earth, which we see in verses six through eight. While the heavens and the earth were created at the beginning, they, like the light and the dark, they were not distinguished. They were not limited or bounded. The text depicts this as a making of a firmament, an expanse, the Hebrew rakia. The waters of the sky are divided from the waters of the sea. The heavens, the skies, and the earth, the land, are particularly, or the surface, are particularly distinguished. And this is God's work of the second day, the evening and the morning. And the fourth and final major division under our first point is that of the land and the sea. The dry land and the waters in verses 9 and 10. The earth is now so distinguished that it is prepared to support life. This was deliberate and definitive. It's not accidental. It's not adaptation as evolution would have us believe. And we see that this creative act is good. God sees it and it is good. This world was fitted for life by an all-powerful, all-knowing, purposeful creator God. This brings us to our second point. After the divisions, we come to diversification in verses 11 through 25. As the foundations are now laid for the earth and life, the earth will now be filled. It will be populated with various species. So first, we see the plants of different kinds. We see grass, we see seed-bearing plants, and we see fruit trees. And we see that they are each brought forth according to their kind. This differentiation of species was a deliberate act from the first creation. All of the diversity of life in this world, it doesn't come as the result of some evolutionary process where we all descended from some common ancestor like a single-celled bacteria. As I mentioned earlier, the fossil record shows gaps. It doesn't support this macroevolution, species becoming other species. Now, this is not to say that species don't change over time. Some species are capable of interbreeding. They change through genetics. That's why, for instance, people are generally taller than they used to be in history, or we have different traits like eye color, hair color, skin tone, whatever. They're all over the place. There is this microevolution within species, but macroevolution, evolution from one species to another, that doesn't happen. God created species according to their kind. So God makes these species of plants, and that concludes the work of the third day. Now on the fourth day, we see a further organizing of light and darkness. We see the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars to give light to the earth, to distinguish day from night, to distinguish the seasons one from another. Now again, these were created orderly. They were created with purpose. They were not mere chance, product of a big bang or some other chaotic event. They are this way and they are where they are because God made them so. He made them with intent. I mean, why is it that the earth is 
just the perfect distance from the sun to not be too too cold or too hot for life to survive. Why does the moon do what it does? It's cycles of days that regulate tides and other things. Why are the stars placed as they are, aiding navigation and the telling of time? Because God made them so. God placed them where they are. God is all-knowing and He is all-wise and He created the conditions for life and flourishing in the earth. And with other acts, God sees that this is good. This is the way it should be. This is the way it's supposed to be. And so concludes the work of the fourth day. On the fifth day, God creates the creatures of sea and air in verses 20 through 23. Now you will note that there is an order to this order. To have animals, you need plants as a food source. You need regulation of climate by the sun and the moon and the cycle of seasons. And then, once these are in place, God makes the creatures, the sea creatures and the air creatures first. And then God sees that these are good and concludes the fifth day. On the sixth day, God creates land animals of all kinds from the insects and the creeping things to the cattle, all the other larger animals. And as before, God declares them good. But God's greatest creature and greatest act of creation is reserved for the end of the sixth day. And this brings us to our third point. After divisions and diversification, we come to dominion in verses 26 through 31. We see in these verses the special creative act of man. Now, this story will be told twice in Genesis from two different angles. Here we see it placed in this accounting of creation, these six days. Next week, Lord willing, we will see the creation of man retold with its covenantal implications. Here we see the story told with dominion implications. We see here that God creates man in his image. We hear that God speaks, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now a question that always comes up here is who is we, who is our, that God is addressing? It has become popular among some modern scholars, Meredith Quine, who I mentioned earlier with the framework view being one, to say that God is addressing his divine council of angels Again, drawing on parallels to ancient Near Eastern cultures and documents and how kings in that era would sit in council. You'd say, well, God is sitting in council among the angels. But again, this view introduces problems. In other places in Scripture, we see teaching concerning man as the image of God, but we never see anything about man being created in the image of angels. We granted that God created man somehow in his image and somehow in the angel's image. Where does one start and the other end? Are angels created in the image of God? So many more problems and questions are raised than are solved by this view. So if we wish to reject such modern speculation, where do we turn? The church historically, and I would argue accurately, says that God's address here is an intra-Trinitarian conversation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these three persons of the one being that is God, take counsel together to create man uniquely in the image of God. 
This is, for instance, a position explicitly articulated in the Belgic Confession of Faith in chapter 9, article 9. Though we only see it in a shadowy form, Trinitarian revelation is clearly occurring from this first chapter of the Bible. We saw it before with the Spirit of God hovering. We see it again with this plural address, God taking counsel as Trinity to create man in his image. So, if man is created uniquely in the image of God, what does that mean? Well, the image of God is constituted in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. These are the terms our catechism puts it in. God uniquely created man as a moral creature and morally accountable. Now, this means that God created man with the knowledge of God's law. He knew what was good and was able to do it. The moral law, as our confession teaches in chapter 19, is the same law as summarized in the Ten Commandments, the duties of love of God and love for neighbor. Although they are not here inscribed on stone tablets, they are written on the heart. Man was created rational, able to think, able to reason, able to learn and know and apply knowledge, including this knowledge of good that God implanted. Now God created man in his image with these special moral and rational endowments for a purpose. That purpose is stated in the end of verse 26. To have dominion over all the other creatures and all of the earth. God created man to be his vice-regents, his vassal kings, rulers beneath God, the ultimate ruler, to rule the earth on his behalf. Man, because of his moral and rational faculties, because man uniquely has a soul, is in a privileged place above other creation, able to decide things, able to make things, able to build things, and to have a priority to other creatures. Contrary to the environmental movements of our day that would hold that man is purely another animal, we are above the animals. God has given us dominion over the animals and over the created order. Man was created to make culture, to make civilization, to subdue and fill the earth, to multiply on the earth. The ability to reproduce and fill the earth was given as a commission before the fall. It was given good to man and animal alike. But this also means that marriage and family are not a consequence of the fall, but part of man's original good created purpose in the state of innocence. Now we'll see more detail on marriage next week. But for now, know that the family before the fall was instituted and it was part of man's created purpose. Because we see in our day many attacks on the family and attempts to usurp the family's role and authority in our day. This is in violation of God's created order. We also see here in verse 27 that God created man, male, and female. Now it should go without saying, but sadly does not go without saying in our day that there are two sexes. Not two genders. Gender theory is a novel ideological construct intended to be fluid and transitory, Gender is not a real thing, but sex is real, and God created two sexes, determined male and female, and every person is one or the other. Now, there is, as a consequence of the fall and sin, 
some genetic defects and the like that produce corruption of this. But God's created order for the human race is strictly male and female, determined by God. Now, the world that has been made thus far is given to man for his nourishment and sustenance. Man is created to work, to subdue, to have dominion. So work, too, labor, is not a consequence of the fall. But that work in the state of innocence will be assured of its fruitfulness. The plants will provide adequate food, adequate nourishment, not only for man, but for all of life. We don't see at this point any evidence of other creatures, animals being killed for food. Violence and bloodshed did not belong in the state of innocence. In verse 31, we get the final postscript on this work of creation. God saw everything that he had made, and it was not just good, as he has said before, but it was very good. After the creation of man, the crown jewel of creation in the image of God, creation is not merely good, but very good. It is whole. It is complete. And this concludes the work of the sixth day. But there is one more day, and this brings us to our final point. After these divisions, diversification, and dominion, we see in the first three verses of chapter 2, desisting or resting. After God spent six days creating the heavens and the earth and all in them, he rests. Now it is not that God is tired and needed rest. God is immutable. He does not change. But God acts here in a way to communicate something to us. He is establishing a pattern. Six days of work, one day of rest. We see in verse 3 that the seventh day is blessed. It is sanctified. It is set aside. It is uniquely singled out from the other days. And this is the foundation for our doctrine of the Sabbath. I read to you from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments earlier, and how the Sabbath command appeals to this work of six days and the day of rest in creation. The Sabbath did not originate at Mount Sinai. It originated here in creation, in the beginning, in the garden. God purposed us to work six days and then rest one. Now, in light of Christ's resurrection, the day moves from day seven to day one, from Saturday to Sunday, but the principle remains the same. We need rest from our labors. We need a day set apart from the matters and cares of this world and sanctified, consecrated, set apart for the things of God. But the Sabbath is not merely an earthly picture of earthly things. The Sabbath is a picture of heavenly things. Although our text today takes place in the state of innocence, apart from sin, there is a foreshadowing in the Sabbath of things to come for God's people. The fall and sin are coming. In a couple of weeks, we will see them in their gory detail. Labor and toil will become harder, unproductive, stained by the destruction of sin. But in the Sabbath, we see a picture of rest after labor. Though we now live on this side of the fall, where the world is corrupted and stained with sin, we see in the Sabbath rest a picture of eternal life and hope, where we will be returned to this state of innocence, this state of paradise, where all things are very good. 
I know that we have covered a lot of ground today in this creation account. There's many applications and implications. But most important in this is this. In Genesis 1 and beginning chapter 2, we see the creation of a good world. A world in a state of innocence. It tells us much about the world we live in now and our purposes, which despite the fall and sin do continue in their own ways. We will unpack in more details in the weeks to come what this looks like. But we also recognize in this creation that the very good world in a state of innocence is something that we are lacking, something that in very real and important ways we are missing. We no longer have the true knowledge and righteousness and holiness originally endowed on man in the image of God. We are fallen, we are sinful. We are stained and marred by sin in various ways. And yet there is coming a restoration of this state of innocence. Now what did it take to do this, to restore this state? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entered in to fallen and sinful creation to give back what Adam lost. To live a life of perfect righteousness and holiness to die a sacrificial death to pay the penalty of sin. Those who repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have the hope of restored and renewed innocence after this life in the new heavens and the new earth. So if you have not believed and received this gospel, it is offered to you once again this day. But for all of us here today gathered, may we glorify and praise our great and almighty God who made the world good with all its intricacy, with all its detail, who is almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing and able to do beyond what we can even comprehend and imagine. Let us all believe upon him and his word and what he has said, believe it to be true, believe it to be accurate. And may we live our lives in this world and exercise the ability, exercise the dominion that we have for his glory, and for the love of our neighbor. Let us pray. Father, we know that there is much in this text, this glorious account of your power and how you have created the earth, created it good, created it very good, how you have created us. I pray that your spirit would apply this word to our hearts, that we would understand it rightly, that we would not be confused by the attacks and distortions of our day, but that we would believe in your ultimate authority and your ultimate truth. Most of all, I pray that we would believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, who has loved us and who gave himself to restore this state of innocence which has been lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.